I'm, I'm going to share a final installation of, of this on heaven. It's going to be a little bit of a different nuance about heaven. Um, again, I recommend Randy Alcorn's book on heaven. It's a great book. It's thorough, ex exhaustive. And um, it just kind of helps us understand a little bit more what's ahead for us. It's going to be good, I can tell you that, better than what we can ever imagine. I spent some time with Brother Davis today, Vernon Davis. I uh, took him to the Indian restaurant there on 15th Street, and uh, he loves Indian food, so we had a good time there. And um, I just wanted to spend some time talk with him. I, I hope not too far down the road that he'll be able to come in and just share some of the some of the things that he's gleaned to, through the experience of seeing his wife um, transition from this world to that other world. And uh, it was, every situation is different. Uh, the grace of God has been poured out upon him and he's heading down to, um, to look at the monument that's been put in place. So he's eager to see that. Uh, I asked him about the Hindu's concept about life after life. And um, it's such a strange approach they have. As, and, and he kind of put it this way. It's, it's, um, it's like a ladder that they're climbing and they're, the reincarnations are supposed to get them to the, closer to the top of the ladder. And at the top of the ladder, what their, their arrival is a state of nothingness. Nirvana, that... It's just, they dissolve. Now, it's kind of interesting to me that they kind of have that idea where they actually think they can be an animal. <laughs> the next go around or an animal, that's why they won't kill animals. That might be your cousin running around. You're about to eat your cousin. You know, they have all these different ideas, and but all they have to look forward to is nothing. Nothing. So I, this is what I asked him. I said, well, when a Hindu is saved, when they're converted, how does that, how do they transition from that to this? He said, oh, it's miraculous. They don't need any deprogramming. They don't need, need to be reprogrammed or reeducated and say, well, this is the way. It says it's kind of like comes with the package of being born again. That have this joy, this expectation, this longing. Uh, you meet Jesus spiritually in this world through the Spirit, but the reality of it is you meet him as though he's right there in front of you. And so they have this longing, innate longing to be with him, to join with him in that permanent state of resurrected life. So you, they go from this... Uh, depressing field journey to this hope field journey with with something at the end that's good and it's not nothing is that a double negative i think it might have been a double negative there then he quoted a passage that was a sunday night when we was having prayer leon clay quoted this passage to me and brother davis quoted it again today and it's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Sadly, we kind of stop quoting that verse at that word. 
But God has revealed, God has revealed it to us by his spirit. That changes what you just read. But the, the magnificence of it, and no eye has seen, no ears or no mind can really comprehend. This is what Paul is saying. What is on the other side? But God has given us enough revelation that we, we get it. That it's like, wow, this is, you know, we don't see everything fully. We're in a veiled place. One somewhere down the line, we're gonna that veil is gonna be taken away. We're gonna see and we're gonna know even as we are known. But right now, we have been given enough by the Holy Spirit to know that whatever's on the other side of that door, however it looks to us, is gonna be really neat. Holy Spirit's given us enough about that. So, um, conversation changes. Everything when that conversation is built around Jesus. Christ changes everything, doesn't he? He doesn't just change one thing. He just starts reshuffling even the rooms in our lives that we don't want him to remodel and reshuffle. He does that too. Because he wants us to be in the place that he can work in our lives and he can use us for his glory. So um, I'm going to share some three three different um they are connected to our being joined with Christ. And this is the last thing that's going to happen to us, that we're going to be joined forever. This is his promise in the upper room in John chapter 14. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm coming back for you so that where I am, you may be there with me. And he's, he's as longing for us to be with him as we want to be with him. So there's three components to this I'm going to share with you this evening and the first one is this we share in his sufferings and this is in connection to what Robbie Zacharias just went through in the uh, class in the uh, Jim and Karen's class and right now media on foundations of apologetics um, where does suffering fit in with our connection with Christ what about suffering we are repelled by unpleasant things happening in our lives. And many times, I think all of us at one point or another said, uh, Lord, why are you letting this happen? And maybe, maybe we're not like you're the source of this, but why aren't you putting the brakes on this? Why is this? Why are you allowing this to come to me? And we kind of react that way because it's something really uncomfortable, something painful, something disappointing, something that's costly. And especially when people close to us pass away or are on the threshold of passing away and we just struggle with some things, right? I want you to see a couple of passages here on that. The sufferings that we go through are connected to Christ's sufferings. So this is in 2 Timothy chapter 2, this first passage I'm going to give you. 2 Timothy chapter 2, and this is verse 10. Paul says, this is his last correspondence that he wrote at all. This, after 2 Timothy, that's the end of Pauline's contribution to the New Testament. So he just, he's getting to things that really, he's, he knows he's facing death. He realizes, he says, I'm, I'm about to be finishing on my journey um, I'm ready to pass from this life to the next life. So he says this to uh, Timothy. Therefore, I endure all things for the elect's sake, those who are coming into the kingdom of God, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. 
It is a faithful saying. Watch this. For if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. If we suffer, and it's understood, if we suffer with him, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we believe not, and he shifts gears right here, if we let down on our end of it, guess what? He doesn't let down on his end of it. Yet he abideth faithful. If we believe not, doesn't affect him. He abides faithful. He cannot deny himself, meaning he is not going to desert you in your suffering. And if you suffer with him, if you suffer the same things that maybe he suffered because of the standard by which he lived, if we suffer with him in that suffering, we'll also enjoy the victory that he has. We, we, that's what that, we will reign with him. We will enjoy the victory. Here's another passage that is to me one of the most profound uh, passages on suffering and how we're connected to Christ's suffering. This is Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. This is such a novel idea, and I think this is the only time in all the New Testament it is written this way so that we can understand why do we go through the things we go through and how does that connect to what Jesus went through. Now I rejoice in my sufferings. That, that's kind of odd to say, isn't it? I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. For in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, and filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Do you get that? Do you understand what he's saying? Not only did Paul say, I embrace sufferings, if this is part of what God wants to bring you into fellowship with him for, the, for, the, for your sake, for anything I can do to benefit you, and if it costs me something, I'm glad to do that. I rejoice in whatever it's costing me to get you further into the Lord. But he gives us the idea that what he sees going on in his life is really part of Christ's sufferings. That his suffering is really part of Christ's sufferings. Filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Filling up what is lacking. In other words, the sufferings of Jesus is open-ended to allow you and I to participate in his suffering. That he didn't do all of his suffering while he was here. He's allowed that part of what he went through to be open-ended so that you and I can participate in his suffering, filling up what he suffered. And so this is where, this is one of those times that a little word study goes a long way, that filling up. Antana plerao is the word. Antana plerao is Greek, always enjoys putting two words together to make a full meaning of what it's saying. It is the only time in all the New Testament this verb is used. Only time. And it says this, Bible study tools goes on to say, what is wanting in the afflictions of Christ, what is lacking in what Christ did that was suffering to him, is to be borne by us. We actually get to participate in Christ's suffering. When we suffer for his sake, it's a participation in his suffering. And we get to fill up. So at this point, his approach to the, 
wouldn't it be, wouldn't we kind of face our difficulties a little differently if we had the idea that maybe this is part of my joining Jesus in what he suffered? We want, we want to share in his victory. Amen. We, we want the healings. We want the miracles. We, we want the peace. We want the joy. We don't want the agony. We don't want to embrace difficulty. And yet Paul gives his idea that's kind of like the mark of his blessing on you is that when you endure things for his sake, that's really good because you have stepped into what he suffered for us. Listen, he is not a high priest that is outside of knowing what we go through. He was tempted in every way we are yet without sin. In other words, if you follow what happened in his life, all through his life, he dealt with everything emotional and physical that is devastating to a person's life. His betrayal, his abandonment, and probably the worst thing that can happen to you is when a friend betrays you. When the closest of friends stab you in the back, Judas, you betray me with a kiss? That's how you're going to do this? You selling me out that way? And the rest of the, the apostles were no-shows. They all abandoned him. I'm going to share something here in just a moment about uh, in the next, next point that I'm going to give. But everywhere we suffer, he suffered. So he knows how you feel when things go against you, when things cave in on you, when injustice happens to you, when unfairness is like an avalanche over your life and you're saying, Lord, this isn't right, this isn't fair. If, you, if we would pause and listen, he might say, yeah, I know how that is. I know how it is to face something that's not right, not fair, unjust. Yeah, they're doing you bad. Know how that is. They lied about you. Know how that is too. Everything that we go through, we can either become bitter through it or we can say, Lord, if this is how I embrace what you went through and I get to know you better this way, help me to embrace it. Help me to learn from it. Here's the next, and I've, I've titled this a book by C.S. Lewis, A Grief Observed. Probably one of the most difficult things we go through is grief. The pain of loss. How do we handle grief? Who has an answer to that question? This is, this is why, uh, you know, my time with someone like Brother Davis, I, I, want to, I want to be there to hear the journey that he's on and encourage him and pray with him and pray for him. Lewis married um, a woman 16 years younger than him, Joy Davidman, and he married her in 1956. Um, they met because she came over to England and met him, and she was in a turbulent marriage, and she goes back and gets a divorce, and she's got cancer. She moves with her sons back to England, and they're going to deport her, so they kind of decide to get have an and marriage to where she wouldn't have to go back. And the more they thought about it, they really did love each other. So they got married. Somebody came in and prayed for her late. She had bone cancer. Her, her bones were so brittle they could break real easy. Somebody came in 
I can't remember how, what the person was, but someone came in and laid hands on her and prayed for her, and she had an, a miraculous healing and got up and had about two, two to three years where the doctor said, your bones are as healthy as any bones I see anybody. So they had this delightful experience. He had never married, and this was, his, this was the joy of his life just so happened her, her name was joy but um the cancer came back and it came back with vengeance and she passed away in 1960 he wrote a book called a, a grief observed but he wrote it under a different name he wrote it under the name of n.w clerk i guess he didn't want anybody to know that what he was expressing about his own grief that he probably didn't want people coming around him and you know his friends kind of consoling him but get this when the book was published under that name some of his friends read it and and one of them brought in the book and asked i think this will be of help to you <laughs> his own book <laughs> nobody found out until after he passed away in 63. In fact, November 1963, we had um, one of our presidents to fall to an assassin's bullet. Just so happened on the very same day, C.S. Lewis passed away on that November day in 1963. It was after that that they found out that he had authored the book. So this is what he wrote in one part of that book about handling the loss of his, the joy of his life. Does God then forsake those who serve him best? Open question, isn't it? Honest question. Listen to how he answers that question. Well, he who served him best of all said, Near his tortured death, why hast thou forsaken me? When God becomes man, that man of all others is least comforted by God at his greatest need. There's a mystery here which, even if I had the power, I might not have the courage to explore. Meanwhile, little people like you and me, this comes from his book, if our prayers are sometimes granted beyond all hope and probability, probably is thinking about his little wife getting healed, had better not draw hasty conclusions to our own advantage. If we were stronger, we might be less tenderly treated. If we were braver, we might be sent with far less help to defend far more desperate posts in this great battle. It's talking about grief, loss, pain sometimes overwhelming and think about this you think jesus experienced loss like that that he lost people in his life that was really close to him we know this that from the age of 12 to the age of 30 those 18 years that we don't know anything about Joseph is no longer on the scene. He's there when he's 12. He and Mary are trying to find him when they lose him in Jerusalem. So it could be that somewhere in all of that, might have been as late as in his late 20s that 
here he is, hasn't launched his miracle ministry, he hasn't done one miracle, and then he has to watch his father buried. Everybody else close to him that dies buried. He is not in ministry. He's not in anointed, miraculous mode. He doesn't do one single miracle, and yet he's going through this life of experiencing grief, pain, you know, Sometimes people are just really open by their pain. And sometimes we're not we're not ready for it. Like we think the best thing we can do is not try to answer the question. Is just be their friend. The th- the thing about nearing death and grief it, it's it's kind of my parents died in so many so different two ways. My dad was 89. His mind was as sharp as a tack. But cancer was taking him drastically down. He ate some bananas the, the last night on that Wednesday night. I'll never forget this because Scott Martin preached here that Wednesday night, and I was going to go over and see him that night, and I called my sister and I said, How's Daddy doing? He said, well, he's sitting here eating bananas. I said, well, I'm going to be there first thing in the morning. And he finished his journey before I could get there. My sister was holding his hand. My brother was there just 30 minutes before he passed away. He said, Dad will be here when I get back. I just had this feeling. I told Kelly, I said, if you want to see your grandpa, you, you need to start going with me. And she started going with me. She said, but he doesn't look like he's... I said, I just had this feeling that he's not going to be here long. That he's... And and I remember sitting at a table and he's kind of staring off and I'm just wanting him to talk to me, right? Because I'm a talker. Talk to me. And he's staring off and he's eating. And I said, uh, Daddy, is there anything you want to tell me? And he looked at me and says, no, not really. I said, okay. <laughs> I thought you had something really profound that you was going to tell me. I write it down. And he said, nope. And he had decided that He's kind of locked into his finishing his journey. I remember one time I asked him, do you want me to, he had to wheel him around. He lost his, the strength in his legs. I said, you want me to take you back to where mom's at? I said, no. I understood he went back there weeks before he died and said goodbye to her. And it was a settled release. He didn't seem like he was perplexed about it. He didn't bring it up. And then my mom, the the silver lining on my mom is that she was so advanced with Alzheimer's and so oblivious to anything that we could, there's nothing that we thought that she was really aware of other than she loved to eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner. She hadn't lost that. But I thought about when my dad died that, thank you, Lord, that my mom does not know that. She was always fearful of something happening to him. We had a surprise party for her, birthday party for her. And Ruth took her off into town, and we got everything ready. And But when they pulled up in the driveway and she saw all the cars, she said, oh, something terrible's happened to Winfred. And she busts through the doors with this horrible look on her face, and we said, happy birthday. We started singing happy birthday, and, and she grabs her arm. <laughs> 
and she starts kind of smiling and not smiling and like, yeah, okay, every birthday to me. And then she said, y'all scared the wadden out of me. I thought something had happened to Winfred. And it's like, here she has these mixed emotions. But that was her, and we thought, if there's a silver lining to all this, she eased out of this world into the world without dealing with the enormity of grief. And they both processed it so differently. My dad was resolute. And I think, I think when we, I think we ought to feel like when we get to that point, all of us are getting one day closer to that point, that we... There ought to be some part of us that's like, it's okay. It's okay. That next world, that next world's okay. It's more than okay. It, it's going beyond what no eye has seen, no ears heard. We can get a little glimpse of it here. But here's the last point. Hope takes over. When we go through grief, we go through pain, we go through suffering, and we, like, where's God? It's not that we don't believe he is. We just want, want, where are you in this? Where are you? And then he has a way of bringing hope into our lives. Remember how 1 Corinthians 13, these three remain? Faith, hope, and love. Elpis is the word. Doesn't mean to wish. It means to trust, to have a settled confidence. To have hope means that you have a settled confidence that something is or will be. And you think about how that word is used in other places. Where do we find that word throughout the New Testament? So it's, it's used over 30 times, but here's one of them, and it's connected to what I'm talking about. 1 Corinthians 15, 19, if in this life only, you know what it says, right? If in this life only we have elpis, we have hope, we have confidence, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. What does that say? If our hope in Christ is only for now and not beyond now, he says we are to be pitied above anybody else. Why is that? Let me give it to you, because this is, this is the verb form, though. This is not elpis, this is elpizo. This is the verb to have a settled confidence in someone. And if we have only a settled confidence in Christ in this dimension only, he says, that's a pitiful thing to face. Is life beyond this life without that. Here's what one, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied give you a couple of more different renderings. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, and I think that's a better rendering because it's the verb, it's not a noun. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. 
If our hope in Christ is good for this life only, just for now, and no more, then we deserve more pity than anyone else in the world. That's another rendering of a translation. If a shared hope with Christ does not take us beyond this state, this dimension of being, then nothing is worthy of our devotion and trust. That's what he's saying. But on the other hand, the song says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And then it goes on to saying, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Finally, let me uh, give you one final verse here. I guess we're doing all right on time. Well, yeah. What about apologetics? Boy, it's such a good study in there. And I hope all of you have right now media. Go to Foundations of Apologetics. Think about this. 1 Peter 3.15. One of the 30 places that hope is found. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the not faith. For that confidence, that hope, that settled hope that you have. In other words, I think he's saying it should be obvious enough that somebody's going to ask you, why do you have such confidence? Why aren't you among the group who's saying it's going to be the end of the world? The ice caps are going to melt. All the coastline's going to be gone, and the earth's going to be gone, man's going to be gone, and everything's going to be gone. And everybody's scared to death of the coronavirus. And you have more likelihood to get the flu and die from it than that. But look at the, look at the panic. Look at the panic, and it's just like people get so panicky that they start acting as though it's right next door to them. So far, nobody in Alabama has contracted it. And we pray, we pray for our daughter-in-law who's working in a hospital right there near Evergreen where the first death take, took place in the same medical complex right around where she's at. But do you see the panic? You see how it can consume people? And he says... The believers have a different approach to things. They're, they have a hope, and it's not just for this life, it's for the next life, he says. And if people say, hey, what's the deal with you? Be ready to explain to them what the deal is, that you're not one of those wringing the hands and just going crazy over something like that. Hey, how easy would it be to be pulled into that? When I was in India... With Vernon Sarah Davis, she would not let me touch anything without throwing a hand sanitizer in my hand. And I was telling Brother Davis about that. I said, every time I think about this, I think about, she says, well, <laughs> she wasn't only trying to protect you. She was trying to protect herself. Because if you got sick, she would probably felt like she had to take care of you. And then you're messing her life up as well. <laughs> Because that's what happened with Brother Loper. He got sick and she had to tend to him. So she didn't want to be tending to any sick person over in India. 
But it's just being smart. But it's also like, I think we ought to register a different disposition to the things that's going haywire in our society and say, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking in sand. So be ready to give an answer, an explanation, an apologia. That's where we get apologetics from. It's a, it's a description of why we are the way we are. And that's including how we handle death, how we handle terminal illness, um, you know, I visited Willie T. Lewis one day about two months ago. Probably more than that. And he had four, uh, stage four lung cancer. And I was told by the person who asked me to go visit him, um, he was a funeral director. He said, we're already planning his funeral. And can your church, can we use your sanctuary? I said, Oh, this is what he asked. I'll be, let me say it exactly like he said. Can we rent your sanctuary? I says, no, you can't rent our sanctuary. You can use it. But that sanctuary is not for rent. It's for people. It's for the people of God. It's for the kingdom of God. So, yes, you can use it. And I'm telling you what, this place was packed. That funeral was packed. The parking lot was as full as I think I've seen it. About Six rows back there was class of 1970 County High School. They were just like 40 or 50 of them alone. And all I did was go to him, talk to him, make sure he was right with the Lord. We shared. We were six days apart in age. We just had a lot of things in common in our life. Both of us had prayer together. He had no fear. He knew he was dying. Yes, we ought to pray for healing. But when that man was telling me where he was at and his resolve, it was like, okay, okay. Death didn't scare that guy. He didn't have, he, he knew, he just was, yeah, let's pray. And I guess he told his wife about that visit and she wanted me to have a part in his funeral. Nobody knew me. <laughs> The only person in the family that knew me died. So everybody's like, who's that guy? And he's the guy that visited him over at Forest Manor. But when you walk away from somebody like that, it's kind of like, you know, I could get, I could have a collision here on McFarland, and I could get to heaven before him, and I should have the same resolve he has. I should have the same hope he has. I, not that I'm a, I got oxygen like he had oxygen, his lungs were about gone, and and all of that is, is we better we better have that same kind of hope every day of our lives. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. I want to pray with you. Thank you, Lord.